as we've reported at federalnewsnetwork.com, the federal community lost a peerless reporter and friend this week. Longtime Federal News Network columnist Mike Causey died Monday at 82. And before joining our team in the early 2000s, Mike wrote his daily Federal Diary column in the Washington Post for nearly 40 years. Longtime readers and the community Mike covered all of these years are now sharing what Mike meant to them. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has been gathering the incoming, and he joins me now with some more. And Jory, just tell us, what are readers saying? There's so many of them out there weighing in. Almost immediately after this news broke and that people were made aware of Mike's passing, we got an avalanche of comments from his longtime readers about what he meant to them. And here's just a sampling. We couldn't possibly share all of the comments that we got about Mike, but here's a sampling. We heard from Robert Koenig, the former director of the Federal Government Service Task Force, which was a Congressional Civil Service Caucus back in the 1980s. He said that Mike believed in public service, but he also believed in the people who served with all their warts, their anxieties, and problems reflecting the humanity and frailty of all they served. He never shied away from the heart of a story, but probed to understand and help his readers understand. We need his like today more than ever, but his rare breed is truly endangered. I guess that's certainly a comment we'd agree with. We also heard from Bill Hersey. He's a former EPA employee. He represented the National Federation of Federal Employees, a local there, as well as a local chapter of the National Treasury Employees Union. What he said about Mike was that his columns, they were always refreshing takes on what it meant to be a federal employee and what was happening across government in other agencies and regions. When he left the post, it was like a friend moving away, but he was still accessible on the air. He was one of the good guys. All right. Well spoken. And we also heard from people that were fairly high level executives in the federal government, too. Yeah, we heard from Mary Davey, who is a deputy associate administrator for mission support over at NASA. She's a longtime Fed and previously worked at the General Services Administration. She said, I'm a longtime fan and so appreciated Mike's service and dedication to providing information to the federal workforce. I found his blogs and interviews incredibly informative and helpful and relied on him for always providing analysis about matters related to pay and retirement. And Mike seemed to have a connection with the unionized federal employees, the rank and file, if you will. That was his, I think, enduring legacy in many ways. And you heard from them also, the unions themselves. Absolutely. In addition to his prolific career here at Federal News Network and at The Post, as you mentioned, he also penned a column in the 1960s for the National Treasury Employees Union called Washington Window. NTU President Tony Reardon looked back on that and he called Causey a, a friend and a partner, really. He said that NTU mourns the death of the legendary Mike Causey and for decades anything Mike wrote about federal employees was a must read for anyone who cared about the federal workforce. Right. As they said about Mike in his late post days that all of the fancy schmancy reporters and the foreign correspondents filled out the paper, but Mike Causey's column sold the paper back when it considered itself a local paper in those days. I don't think it does anymore, but it was really a Washington paper by the owner's own admission in those days. Even members of Congress, Jory, have weighed in on Mike. Yeah, yeah, we had uh, some outpouring there from members of Congress who represent the D.C. metro area and by proxy represent a number of federal employees. Case in point here, we heard from Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland. Mike Causey was a fierce advocate for the federal workforce. His institutional knowledge, which was legendary, and his distinct voice will be missed dearly. 
We also heard from Jerry Connolly of Virginia. Mike was a diligent pro who had an expert knowledge of the federal workforce. Certainly agree with those sentiments there. Here's a blast from the past, really, from Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, who in May of 2000 spoke on the House floor to commemorate Mike's final column in the Post. And she had this to say, most members of the House have been unable to get through a year and certainly an appropriations period without consulting Causey. Federal Diary always provided a reliable place where anyone could knowledgeably and quickly be informed about all federal sector matters. All right. Yes. And by the way, we should mention, and it's been mentioned elsewhere, I think it was first again in an article sometime about 20 years ago in the Washingtonian magazine about Mike, an interview with Mike, that phrase inside the beltway. Mike was not sure that he penned it, but everyone else seems to think he did. And finally he said, yeah, it must have been me. No one else came up uh, and said that they came up with it. And so that's the unofficial history of that that phrase is that Mike came up with it. That's right. And uh, inside the Beltway, he should have known because he was one of the first people to drive the perimeter of the Beltway, that 64-mile famous circle, when it first opened. And in this very newsroom, both Federal News Network and our sister station, WTOP, definitely a legacy there, too. Yeah. Yeah, I reached out to some uh, some former colleagues of ours, Nicola Grisco, uh, a former workforce reporter for us for a long time time and is now over at Maine Public Radio. She left a really great comment about Mike and what uh, what she said is that Mike never took himself or the content too seriously, an admirable feat for someone with the experience and list of stories that he had. Also over at our sister station, WTOP, J.J. Green, who's the national security correspondent over there, he recently moderated a panel at an intelligence and national security summit. Causey had uh, had spoken to him about this panel that he was going to moderate. And this is what J.J. said about that conversation that they shared. Some of you probably know my colleague, Mike Causey, who's one of Washington's most famous journalists. I told him I was doing this a few days ago. And he said, if I were you, I would be scared to death. <laughs> and then Causey told me, he said, look, I've got a safe house down in Dale City or somewhere. He said, you can come and hide out until this thing blows over if you want. (laughs) So, Mike, if you're listening, is it too late? Well, I guess maybe it is a little bit too late, but somehow I think Mike maybe is listening. And Jory Heckman, you have been with Federal News Network for, what, seven years now? Yeah, seven, uh, seven going on eight. You came here as a pretty green young reporter yourself. What are your recollections of Mike? Yeah, I was fresh out of college when I joined Federal News radio then and now Federal News Network. I was originally a web editor, and so I was usually one of the first people to read Mike's columns when they were uh, ready for posting. And uh, he was always one of the first faces I would see in the day. And so um, that's what I remember. He was, of course, um, one of the nicest people I have ever worked with. And uh, gosh, you know, we were all lucky to know. Yes, we sure were. And I think what's important, too, in the relationship that he had with New people such as yourself and some other young ones that have come after you and have cut their teeth here. He never was patronizing, never was talking down to someone who might have been a month into journalism, but always treated them as a colleague, which showed what a deeply secure man he was in his own right. Absolutely. That is uh, part of it. <clears throat> Give me a second. Uh, just take a deep breath here. Yeah, that's one of the great things to remember about Mike. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check all of our coverage of Mike and his legacy at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? 
Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And 
a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.